You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. Good evening and you're very welcome to this week's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and as usual when we encounter a fifth Tuesday in the month we run with a second helpings programme when you get a chance to hear some of your favourite interviews once again. We'll be enjoying second helpings of wine from New Zealand with our resident wine guru Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants and we'll also be repaying a visit to Pandora Bell in County Limerick to meet its founder, confectionery queen Nicole Dunphy. If at any point you'd like to get in touch with me here on the show, you can drop me an email to s.noonan at live.ie or tweet me at Queen of Org as in Queen of Organisation. So to start off the show tonight, no second helping's best possible taste would be complete without a repeat interview with our resident wine guru, Ron Forrestal of Forrestal Wine Merchants. When Ron made his monthly appearance in August, one of my favourite wine regions took centre stage and that was New Zealand. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. Ron, you're very welcome to the studio. Thanks very much. And tonight we're going to the Antipodean region to New Zealand. Yes. Uh, a very well-known part of the world for wine in particular. The Cloudy Bay is the one that comes to mind with me that years yes, ago. Yes, yeah, absolutely. It would have been very rare to see Cloudy Bay on a menu. And if you did, it, it probably wasn't cheap, but mm. it was a very sought-after wine. Is it still as exclusive or is it easier it, to get it now? That's exactly it. It's not as exclusive as it used to be. Uh, it's easier to get. Um I suppose the reason Cloudy Bay worked particularly well is because an Irish company um, called Finlitter is a wine company, a very old wine company based in Dublin, uh, controlled uh, the Cloudy Bay allocation for Ireland, which was literally about 400 cases or 500 cases. I'm talking back in the early 2000s, that kind of time. And uh, people really wanted it. So they spread it out. They sold nobody a case or two cases. They spread out like three bottles, six bottles, a case maybe to really big customers and then it became um, sought after and people liked it and, and uh, it wasn't cheap it wasn't that expensive either and uh, it really worked and then a new agent took it over about seven or eight years ago and there was always much more of it available than that just that Finner's view on it was that let's not flood the market with the stuff now let's make it a bit more uh, a bit rarer and uh, then it has an added value and the other company took it over, then a company called Edward Diddlands, and they imported about 1,000 or 1,200 cases straight away because they thought this stuff sells. And it just collapsed the market for it. It just took away the the mystery, took away the uh, you know the people saying, that, God, I managed to get my hands on two bottles of Cloudy Bay, whereas now you could go into a shop and they'd say, listen, I'll drop a case to you, no problem at all if you want it. And how did the consumer hear about it initially? Because it's not like there was a huge advertising campaign behind it that made the, you know, the, the pull effect in the market where the consumer were asking for it. Was it was it just kind of like a word of mouth amongst it, a certain set? Yeah, it was better restaurants that did it. Um, it was the top, very top-end restaurants uh, had wanted it for their wine list. It was the first Sauvignon Blanc um, you know, outside France that really got uh, the attention that the French products had always got before. Um, it was really premium, yet the price wasn't that premium. You know, it was the same price as a very good Chablis would be or a very good Sancerre would be. It was the same price. 
yet it had this real, real uh, rarity aspect to it, which really worked. It was New Zealand. The product is exceptionally good now. Really, really nice Sauvignon Blanc. Um, and had a Chardonnay as well and a Pinot Noir, which were less in demand. Um, and the, the whole package behind it, um, the winemakers, everything was all very guarded. They were the flagship for New Zealand. Um, New Zealand wine, wine of New Zealand, that that brand, if you like, pushed Cloudy Bay all the time as being the one. Now that stopped as well because obviously other other wines came up that in blind tastings and in competitions did just as well. So obviously they wanted a piece of the action as well. So it spread out much more. And I thought was one of the most interesting things that happened with um, with Cloudy Bay and and Wither Hills and uh, a lot of product, New Zealand products, is that they were the very first to move into school caps, um, you know, 15 years ago when when we had a real issue with things showing up in school caps. They were the first to produce it and gave no choice. You either take it or you don't. That's what they were coming in. And the whole New Zealand brand took it as, uh, the whole New Zealand wineries took it and said, we're going to run with this, we're going to put our best products into it. And that meant that either you bought them or you didn't. Um, whereas if another country had started doing it and put their cheaper products into it and tried to launch it that way, people may have never accepted it. But the way it worked, it worked really well. So. And of course, the screw caps versus the cork is something that we've talked about a few times here, mm. that there's a number of reasons why it is actually better to go for the Absolutely, screw cap. Yeah. You yeah. never need a corkscrew to hand for a never start. Never need a corkscrew. Uh, funny thing, we were talking this with a customer earlier on, and um, the, the customer was an outdoor catering company that did a lot of weddings. And uh, we were talking about wine first, and uh, the lady said it has to be a screw cap because they had wine at a wedding a couple of weeks ago where it was cork. And none of the staff she said, could open them. Like, they have gone so far away from it that they just should have had to put some guy down the corner opening bottles of wine for an hour or two. Uh, because he was the best one at it, you know, which is a terrible waste of a day. Um, whereas the screw caps that are so easy, you open what you need. Even that day, she said, with the corks, we ended up with 18 or 20 bottles unused because they had to be opened beforehand. You couldn't be waiting to do it at the time. So they're much more efficient. Um, they work perfectly well. The only products that are not going into them are the better red products, really, and the really good white products from France, Spain, uh, Italy are not going into screw caps. They're going to stay in cork. Because it doesn't affect the quality of the product. In fact, it probably enhances it because there's no risk of a bottle being corked if there is no, no cork in it. it. There's no risk at all. It's it, like it moves down to an absolute uh, decibel of a percent. Um, in opposed to a fairly strong percentage of the corks, which are which are proven to be very difficult. Now there is other methods as well. There's synthetic corks and, and there's compound corks. You know, which are the ones that are not don't really look like an original cork. They're compounded together like chipboard would be to make a cork, and they're hard to open because they're not as flexible as the old corks were, and they don't breathe as well. And uh, whereas the screw caps are just so much so much easier. And people look look at home. Look go down to a shop now. And look at the shelf in, in, a, in a supermarket that has a range of wine and you can count on one hand how many of them are going to have a cork. Now you mentioned Findladders there, which is still going strong, but did it have a collaboration with Nash Wine at a time? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I worked for Nash's at the, for, for years. And our, when I started with Nash's in 1999, the uh, original name of that company was Findlader Nash. And Nash would be best known for its minerals. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, best known as Richard Nash, um, who's still in town here, um, has um, 
had a, a, a number of companies, but one of them was uh, uh, the Mineral Water Company, uh, Nash Mineral Waters, uh, also involved in Nash Beverages, which was the collaboration with Heineken. Uh, and then there was a division called, it ended up in Nash Wines, which was a, um, a division dedicated to on-trade wines. Very successful, actually. Because I believe Nash Wines did start to import and bottle wine in the late 19, or yeah. 1800s. Yeah, absolutely. It was as, as early as that. It was, But that was very common now. You know, that was very common. That was an unusual thing to happen. If you had wholesalers like Nash's, you know, you'd have Donahue's in Wexford, uh, Letts as well down in the southeast. That would have been, they'd have bought in barrels of, um, you know, casks of port and uh, even whiskey casks and bottled on site. That would have been a fairly uh, a normal thing to have done because you wouldn't have had the flexibility from the producers to do it for you. You know, they were happy to sell you a cask or something and do whatever you want to, whereas now a producer wouldn't let you do that. They want to know exactly what's happening to it, as in what bottle is going into, you know, that they're getting the recognition for what's in it, whereas there wasn't as much at that that time. And uh, Nash's originally was just a fascinating story. Um, Richard Nash's father, that company was just hugely successful, like hugely, uh, and a real trailblazer, uh, I remember being at a, at a dinner once with Rich Nash talking about um, um, water, you know, sparkling water, which is Ballygown, obviously, you know, and, and the connection there. But Richard said they were producing siphon water, carbonated uh, water, 120, 130 years ago. Yeah, I, th- I read in 1873, Joanna Nash, who mm. I'd say would be Richard Nash's grandmother or great-grandmother, learned to carbonate water and carbonate drinks, and that's how the whole fizzy side of the business mm. started. But also you're saying about Ballygowan Water there, that the guy, Jeff Reed, that started Ballygowan Water with Richard Nash, mm. he was the man that introduced the small bottles of wine to Ireland under a company called Grape Expectations. Mm, that's right, yeah, yeah. I just read that recently and thought that was quite interesting because, again, that's something we've talked about here on the show, mm. about the small bottles of wine. Like Ireland is one of the largest consumers yeah, yeah, of that. It's one of the, the only, yeah, after the airlines, absolutely, because the airline business has always been there for it. But um, uh, And some festival business and stuff now has broken into that as well in other countries because they need... Uh, plastic or PT plastic uh, quarter bottles are used a lot as they're used in planes now as well. And there was a guy on Dragon's Den in the UK, I don't know if you saw him, where he was doing, it's like a wine, plastic wine glass mm. with the sealed top with the wine in it. I've seen it, the, yeah. I didn't see it now. But I've, I've seen them for sale now. The, the, the well, I don't think he got the investment from Dragon's mm. Den in the UK, but it, Yeah, that, that was being done probably about seven or eight years ago. There was a product being sold, particularly for festivals, where you know, it had like similar to a yogurt pull off top on the yeah, like exactly, foil yeah. top. Yeah, yeah. And you pulled it off, and then the wine was in it already. And it meant they could store them in the refrigeration and, and be ready to go. And there was no glasses, and it was a single serve. Um, they looked absolutely dreadful now. But they, <laughs> and you know, who knows? But listen, it, well, was, it served a purpose. Well, packaging is something that's very important, really. Mm. You know, when they say you eat with your eyes, maybe at a festival, you're not so worried mm. about that. But some of the wines that you've got today, you've one yes. particular wine here and it has a lovely label on it that is textured. Yes. Well, what I thought was that when, when I picked a few wines for us to look at today, I bought two New Zealand products because just the, the popularity is, is phenomenal on, on New Zealand, Sauvignon Blanc in particular. And uh, I brought two Malbecs uh, from Argentina, again for the reason that Ireland was just taking the Malbec 
um, in a ferocious way in the last uh, two years, year and a half really, I suppose. And people have gone from, we've gone from having maybe two Malbecs on our list and them tipping away very slowly in restaurants to now we have eight Malbecs, um, uh, one Italian, uh, one French and uh, six Argentinian. Actually, I have another Chilean, that's nine, a Chilean one as well, but six Argentinian Malbecs. And is it mainly South America that they would come from? Well, no, the Malbec is, is traditional South of France grape. Um, it works fairly well in Italy as well and was transferred to Italy. Um, but when it went to Argentina, Mendoza and San Juan in Argentina, it just found its natural home, found the weather that really suited it. And even if you take the, the, the South of France product from the Rhone Valley, where it's traditionally been from, and compare that to the Malbec in Argentina, the Malbec in Argentina is a much bigger product, much more powerful um, just the finer weather made it more mature, quicker, um, gave it more sugar content, higher alcohol, uh, but a real, real powerful drink. And not to everybody's taste, we always thought, because it was, it was has a little bit of a rough element to it that's not as fine or delicate as Merlot is or Cabernet or any of those. Um, but it's Irish people has really taken to it very well. Very food-orientated wine. But as, as we said already, the... For the amount of sales we're seeing it, it's not all attached to food. People are in bars drinking glasses of it now where they're not eating as well. That's fairly obvious. It must be the case. Because it's the sort of wine that I would opt for if I was having a steak mm, because I've been told it goes very well with steak. It does because look where it comes from. It's coming from Argentina where their you know, meat is, is it. You know, that's the um, vegetarians must have a, just a horrific time uh, because it's so much meat, uh, so much big cuts, um, uh, and fried meat, you know, barbecued, very strong flavoured meat. And this is, uh, Malbec's the perfect version. I bought two Malbecs, one from Mendoza, which is the, um, I suppose, the most well-known area in Argentina, and the other one from San Juan, which is a little bit over towards, more towards Chile, um, and closer to the Andes, and a really up-and-coming area in Argentina. And the best thing about that was the Malbecs is they're very good value. Like, both of those are coming in around 12 or 13 euros. So not that expensive. Mm -hmm. But they're at the upper end now. They're at the better end. And it's very interesting that this one, the year I know is on all the bottles of wine, but the year is very prominent on yeah, this one. Yeah, smacked it right out front, yeah, which is... Um, now, they haven't as much, but uh, the, this for the Luigi Bosca is the producer of this La Linda Malbec, um, like costing around 12 euros a bottle. I think it's a fantastic product. Big, heavy bottle. Everything about it is good, real quality. And it's a really smashing product in 2015 vintage of that. But a lovely, lovely product. Not in any shops at all. And should it be drunk young? Yes, yeah. It's not, they're not meant like those ones. Now, they make a reserve version of this. It's not called reserve. It's called a select because they can't use the word reserve in Argentina. Um, so it's a selected version of this, which is a, um, a much more A for an aging product. And when they're aged, this is put into the bottle to be ready to drink immediately. Um, as soon as it hits the bottle. But then they produce other products which are not quite ready. So there might be 2012 now of that selected that would be perfect. Yet when it was originally released a couple of years ago, it would have been a bit young to drink. It would have been fine, it just wouldn't be as good as what it is. And why can't they use reserve in Argentina? They changed the rules because uh, Chile haven't done this yet. Um, reserve means things in various countries. Um, I suppose Spain is the, best, um, is the best example of it where it actually means something. Uh, there's a criteria that it needs to fall into and it's time and oak time and an oak barrel that gives it that that allows you to call it in Spain allows you to call it a crianza which is a, 
up to six months uh, reserve, which is nine months plus, and then grand reserve, which is eighteen months plus, in the in the the cask. Now that that's criteria that you have to follow. Uh, whereas in when it was in Argentina, reserve meant you just liked it more than the other one. You know, you felt it was better than the previous one or the other one, and the same in Chile. And that doesn't really mean anything. So it has no, and it's kind of deceptive for the people who are buying it because they assume that this product is better, where oftentimes it's not. So the selected, a lot of the companies use the word selected, or they might have selection, or they might have different ways of single vineyard where they say it actually comes from somewhere in particular. But the, the, the selected version of this one is an actual parcel where they believe the best Malbec is grown, and it comes from there. So a lot of them are very proactive. They do it properly. You know, they and you would know that, but your average diner sitting in the restaurant wouldn't necessarily know that, just that the price would be an indicator. Yeah, the price would be a fairly serious indicator, like you jump up significantly. So on a restaurant wine list, like that Lelinda would be somewhere around 27 euros, 26, 27 euros, and the selected version would be 35. Okay. The other Malbec then? It's Lunaris. This is from Calia, uh, from San Juan, different region. Uh, if anything, it's a slight bit more easier to drink than the Mendoza ones. It's not as rough around the edges, a bit more refined. Um, but it's really up and coming. And this is, a, we have this in two labels, as it turns out, uh, Lunaris and uh, Cali Alta, because we sell quite a lot of it to the same kind of places. So we have two labels in it to kind of diversify. But it's the same product. Same product inside. Same product inside. Oh, okay. That happens quite a bit with wine. Whereas, um, you know, it's, so you can't, there's a certain bit of, um, there needs to be an exclusivity for products uh, and really you just need to be able to, to manage that and a lot of the time the winery will say well, we have two labels um, for the product if you want we're happy to put them on it yeah so that works very well uh, yeah and I know Nick all of your wines as you said you can't get them in shops because I think whenever you do go out to, to eat if you see something that's mm. on the menu that you can buy in the local supermarket for a fraction oh, yeah. of the price Absolutely. it doesn't it's not a good feeling I listen, there's nothing wrong with them, you know, because there's products, huge branded products that are very popular. And there's a reason they're very popular is because they're actually very nice. But I think there is an issue, you know, there's a certain amount of, um, you don't need to be shoved in your face the fact that you can buy something for 10 euros and that it may be 27 or 28 euros in a restaurant. Like, you just don't need to be really told that. that uh, there's a few products that kind of good, that kind of manage to, to, to serve both. Um, there is uh, Wolf Blast is one. Uh, for example, and I sell Wolf Blast as well. And uh, restaurants still buy it and will not take it off the list because it's such a huge following for it. It's remarkable. Is that because people are familiar with it? Familiar and really like it. The product's very good. Like, there's nothing... Uh, the quality is exceptionally good at the lower levels, particularly, you know, the, like the house wine and the one above it. They're very, very good products. Um, but then everybody knows the price of it. You know, everybody knows that, that product is... Off times eight fifty or nine euros in a supermarket on offer. You know, there's, there's a certain amount. Now, the chance of the restaurants won't be able to buy it for that at all. They'll probably pay more. Probably better cheaper for them to buy it in the shop, actually, if they thought about it. It's mad, yeah. It is. And then let's talk about the New Zealand. Yes. They're both Sauvignon Blancs. Both Sauvignon Blancs uh, from two different areas in New Zealand. Marlborough, which is the area, you know, it's the one that gets all the attention. And then Hawke's Bay, which is a been around for the sale at the time but doesn't quite produce as much wine uh, but very produces really unique products and this is a product called Elephant Hill it's a winery owned by German people um, they set it up um, probably about 15 years ago now uh, in our Nash days we dealt with these as people as well and we've started dealing with them again now 
Um, and the Elephant Hill is, is basically they have an elephant uh, sculpture in the, on the way into the vineyard, a huge one. You've visited it? Have no, you I've been never there? been to Disneyland, okay. but I'm going to go sometime. My kids <coughs> get through college, maybe. Um, <laughs> but the uh, owned by a German people, they do everything right. Everything is just remarkably doing well. And they believe they're the closest uh, vineyard to the ocean in the world because the beach literally runs into the vineyard. The sand is, is right there. And they believe they're the closest. They haven't seen anywhere else closer. And how does that impact on the flavour of the grapes and, and the, the ultimate end product? Well, see, the, the air movement is hugely important for, for grape growing. You need hot days and cool nights. And the sea gives you that. You know, mountains give you that as well. Uh, so a lot of the stuff around the Andes in South America grows particularly well for that reason. Um, but it works really well. Now, there's a salt issue, you know, of course, which needs to be handled as well. You can't allow salt to get in there or water to wash in on top of it. That would be a disaster. So when I mean very close, I mean from 25 feet or 30 feet away from where the beach would start. But um, it's a beautiful setting. Uh, a friend of mine was there, actually. He was over at the, um, at the World Cup, the Ruby World Cup, maybe four or five years ago. And we organised a visit from his customer who bought it. And he was just amazed. They have a restaurant. They have a tasty rooms amazing place I love the label we'd mentioned yeah. the label before about the texture yes, label the it's just, the it's just skin, adds it? something extra to it it's like elephant and skin is that's it? the idea yeah. okay cool yeah but I want to emphasize the fact that it has nothing to do with elephants and there's no elephants <laughs> harmed in this it's just a texture put on the thing and the other one is that it was a really unique product it's called Kono um, which is the first uh, from Marlborough uh, Sauvignon Blanc as well uh, first 100% owned Maori Maori owned vineyard in New Zealand now they have a whole uh, wine is one part of what they do they have a whole food mentality as well where they grow vegetables fruit uh, honey uh, olive oil a whole uh, cooperative idea put together all Maori based and uh, but this, uh, this is not a gimmicky product now. This product is winning uh, awards all around it. It's a smashing product and it's fantastic value. A really, really good value. And how much would those wines retail at? That's about €12 Euros a bottle. Uh, that's about 16 now. It's more okay, expensive. Okay, yeah. All um, right. The Elephant Hill. The Elephant Hill. Right. But the Kono is about 12 12 50 a bottle. Okay. Very good value. Well, all great looking wines. Thanks a million for coming in and telling us about them tonight. And of course, forestal.ie is the web address. Yes. If people want to get in touch or place an order, they'll get all your details there. Absolutely. Great Thanks, to talk sure. to you as always. Cheers. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by the Taste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan. And just before the break, we were in the Antipodean region and discussing wines from New Zealand with our resident wine guru, Ron Forrestal of Forrestal Wine Merchants. If you are just tuning in, you can catch up on Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM when it's repeated on Wednesday mornings at the new time of 8am. The podcasts are available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com as well as iTunes and the podcast app and now it's on the TS.ie website, voted Ireland's best online digital food and drink magazine.
Now time for the final second helpings interview of this evening and it's with Nicole Dumphy. At the start of the recession, Nicole walked away from a pensionable job with RTE to fulfil her childhood dream to become a confectionery queen. Last summer I met her at her county Limerick base to find out more. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Nicole, thanks so much for having me here at Pandora Bell. You work from home, which is a huge privilege in this day and age, isn't it? Yeah, I love working from home because we've got just got a little secluded spot outside Limerick City where I'm kind of close to all the, the cinemas and Costa Coffee and all the bits and pieces. But it's also it's just it's quite private here. We've loads of space. It's, it's lovely. You started Pandora Bell in 2009, which was just really when the recession was hitting. Just tell us a bit about the company first. Well, I decided to set up a company that was really high end. I didn't see any point in going and trying to compete in the middle of the market because there's companies there like Butler's and Lilies who really do things so well. I could, you know, I could never get that scale and that sort of level of manufacturing. So I just really wanted to be a luxury brand. I also wanted to veer away from chocolate because again there was quite a few companies in Ireland who were doing that really really well so Pandora Bell is about luxury sweets um, so we wanted to introduce products that weren't available and that in that quality in Ireland at the time um, this was only the start of the food revolution in Ireland so there wasn't as much choice maybe as there is now so we took some kind of core products which really still make up the the center of what we do which was nougat um, salted butter caramels um, and some handmade lollies and we branded those beautifully and we added our own flair to them and got them out on the market in Ireland and that was the start of it and it's just grown since then. Some people might be surprised that you weren't working in the food industry before you went out on your own, you were in the media. Yes, so I worked in RTE in production, which um, has been a great help for me in promoting Pandora Bell. I guess I don't have any particular um, mystique or awe about the media because I've worked in it and I know how it works. And and the media has been very good to me um, since I've started Pandora Bell. Um, But no, I I was always interested in food and I did take a a good career break um, and went and did some research and study and training in food. Um, so that's it just I, I also enjoyed working for myself so it was a kind of a natural progression in some sort of odd way to go from RTE to Pandora Bell. You mentioned the packaging there and the branding which is very strong it is very high-end it's very classy just describe it to us and where you got the inspiration for it. Well packaging and branding are really important to me I I love that side of of the business um my degree was in art history so I have a I just have a love for beautiful things um I have a love of history so I wanted the brand to look to be traditional so I think we have a a trust in traditional values and the I wanted the packaging to reflect the fact that the ingredients and methods of Pandora Bell were traditional it was like back to the way sweets used to be before crazy colors and whiz pops and bazooka joes and you know back to the core traditional European sweets so the packaging was to reflect that now I got inspiration from different places but a lot of it would have been just traveling around to different food halls and looking at packaging but also looking at cosmetic packaging and looking at different patterns and then you know looking at different color cards from um from the 
places like Faro and Ball and you know how they refine the colour palette to be um, exactly as they would have been traditionally maybe at the beginning of the century or the 19th century that it, it so that's where we take our, our our palette and our tones and then we um, apply it to a kind of a maybe a more um, out uh, we, we apply that to a sort of a food packaging base that makes any sense and there is is it a cameo is that how you would describe the image of the little girl or the head of the yeah. little girl with the hair is that yes. a cameo is it that is a cameo called? yeah um we first of all pandora bell had a a little ponytail a kind of a high ponytail and she i suppose now she she has a bun so she's kind of become a more mature pandora bell over the the nine years that she's been alive she's she's got a new hairdo to make her more a little bit more sophisticated and where did that name come from was there a real person called pandora bell at some stage in history so the idea of pandora bell is that she is a 1920s 1930s girl she's a fictional heroine um so i'm when she came to my mind i pictured this girl standing in a train station with the steam train leaving and she um, went with her leather luggage and she goes off around Europe on a steam train and she discovers all the best of European confectionery. So she journeys through all the cities, pretty much like on the, the way gentlemen used to go on the grand tour years ago after college. Um, and that was, the, that was the idea of her. And also that at that time, women would not have gone off on these kind of journeys on their own. So she's adventurous and she's just got a bit of attitude and is out there and learning and bringing it all back to Ireland so that was that's the idea of Pandora Bell and it's quite a, a romantic story and we base everything we do still around that um, and it's a story I'd love to develop a bit more. Yeah it's very interesting the way that you have invested so much thought and time and energy on that side of the business because I think a lot of food companies they put their heart and soul into the actual product when the branding that you've talked about, the packaging, all of that is equally important whenever it comes to selling it. Yes, well, we're also, I suppose, we're not selling spaghetti hoops or something kind of functional or everyday. We're selling something that's for a special moment or for a gift or, you know, so it has to have something extra about it. And I think if you're, as as someone who's creating the product, if I don't feel a bigger experience to it I'm not that's not going to come across and everything we do should fit into that bigger experience so it's kind of like a guiding light of where to go on the road as you go forward as well to always think back to where you started how do you come up with the the ideas then for your product range because it is quite diverse whenever you're looking at lollipops one minute then licorice and salted licorice the next yeah so um I go to trade shows I eat a bit I mean isn't that the best way to do it you know you you look at what other people are doing but you also then look at what other people are not doing which is just important as what they are doing um and just to try and see what's not out there or what is out there but at not a great level maybe um I have a list I have a book of things that I want to do and then one by one we work our way through them or by the time you might get to something it might have become too much of a trend or you know I don't like doing something that has suddenly become a big 
trend then then everyone's doing it and you know where do you get the recipes from then is it recipe testing that you do yourself do you take a basic recipe and then put your own twist on it yeah generally that is how it goes and then we try and refine recipes we've done already you know like um this year we've removed the carmine extract from our candy canes and they're just colored now with carrot extract so they're vegetarian and they're really pure so it's like you you just have to keep going back over and over and trying to improve everything as well just because you've something out there doesn't mean that it can't be made a bit better as you go on so a lot of it is is not even coming up with new things sometimes it's looking at what you have and and refining that just another little bit do you find there's a demand now for vegan friendly products and gluten-free products Yes, um, gluten-free has been a big thing over the last year or two and we've had a few of our um, range certified that would have been gluten-free anyway but we were able to make sure that there's no cross-contamination um, and we were able to send them to the lab and get, the, get them just certified so we can assure the customers that they are gluten-free so that would be our fudge, our caramels and our fruit jellies but I do think that... Um, the vegan trend is not just a trend maybe in gluten-free it might be a food trend for some people but for but the vegan um trend i think is going to be something that is going to last and grow because really for sustainability it is important um so that can be that is going to be something that in years to come just gains importance i hope what is the most popular product in the range? Which one sells the most? So I think everybody loves really good fudge. Um, crumbly butter fudge is a real classic one. Uh, our lollipop, strawberry lollipop, is always a really good one. And then the almond and pistachio nougat. So they would be the holy trinity. <laughs> You're smiling as you talk about each one. Is one yeah. of those your favourite? Um, yeah, I like the almond and pistachio nougat. A lot. Um, but I like the fudge too. I don't really eat the lollipops much, but my daughter now would be would be the lollipop lady. So and she'd she be the lollipop tester. Me. Yeah, I just can't spend six hours sucking a lollipop. I just have to break it and eat it. And that's so adult of me because I remember when you'd be younger and you, you know, you'd get the custard cream biscuit and you'd take off the top and you'd eat the middle. And it, the whole thing would take so long. Whereas now you just have it eaten as you're walking around the kitchen, you know. And you can do those lollipops with people's names on them, can't you, for yeah, wedding favours? they're really popular for weddings. They're lovely. So we just do maybe the bride and groom's name and the date. Or sometimes it could be um, we'd get... A, orders in with a message like sorry you're leaving or sorry I broke your clock or you know th- you know random messages that we do or hen parties or um so yeah people come up with their their own ideas and, and we'll just go with it so you've a lot of different markets then that you can tap into that's the wedding market and the wedding favors personalized gifts for hen parties for example mm-hmm. and then the products are available in a number of retail outlets yes yeah, so our main core of what we do would be the the retail um but also we're available online so there's pandorabell.com there's not on the high street and there's yumbles and amazon they'd be the main kind of online sellers and then yeah after that it's um it's wholesale out the the kind of main bulk of what we do would be that and do you have any plans to export or do you export a bit at the moment well actually quite early on um we turned to export it wasn't something that was in my original plan at all maybe I didn't think out an original plan enough but after about 
two years we exhibited at ISM with Board Bia. That's the world's biggest confectionery trade fair. And from there we started to um, pick up some customers and export is now about 50% of our business. So I think without realizing it, um, confectionery is actually a really good product to export. It's ambient and it has a long shelf life and that's brilliant. That is just a godsend. You can send it anywhere and, and it will survive, you know, in the right conditions. And do you think it's important to be able to, to not put all your eggs in one basket to diversify throughout the world? Yeah, well, I mean, mainly it, it's it mainly is Europe, um, but and then a bit in the Middle East and we've done a bit in China in the past. But uh, yeah, you do need to diversify. You, you absolutely do. And also i suppose because we here we stock the high-end stores um there's a limit and you have to look you you can either over infiltrate in ireland or you can look further afield and you know we're just blessed that i that we can do that you must tell us about some of the awards that some of the products have won because that must be very useful tool whenever you go out to market to these international markets. Yeah, it is. It. I mean, there's two things that that kind of act like, um, I suppose, a stamp of approval. One would be the other stockists that you would have. So buyers are always, you know, happy to know that we would work with established customers say in Ireland like Avoca or Brown and Brown Thomas and also abroad we would work maybe with Globus in Switzerland and Dean and DeLuca in the Arab Emirates and that's kind of that's important I think their approval is important and then obviously the awards are really important as well so um, last year there was we got um, an innovation award at Seattle in Shanghai which is a trade fair in Shanghai that would be like a big international trade fair and then we also got Great Taste Award for the Pistachio Nougat. And uh, I think the Great Taste Awards are going to be announced in the next couple of days again. So it's like fingers and toes crossed all over the place here. We'll definitely keep an eye out to yeah. see how you get on with those. And I'm sure you'll be clocking up another good few awards to the, the existing portfolio. Now, you mentioned that you started the business in 2009. So it, it, some people would say, and I'm sure some people did say to you, are you mad? Yeah, they did, including my mother. And she was like, oh, dear God, you know, you have a pension woman in RTE. Where are you going? So, no, I mean, it was my kind of personal time to leave. I think I'd had my daughter and um, I suppose you you get into this mode of just wanting to fix everything and make it all right. And um, I just really was ready to move on. And I, there was no point in waiting for this recession to go because nobody knew when that was going to happen. So I just kind of ploughed on with it, really. Um, and yeah, well, I'm still standing, so it must have been okay thing to do. But I, I mean, obviously, because of the time that I started and I had to be more careful, um, I had to be make, you know, wise decisions about what I was doing at every step and hope, you know, hopefully that that has paid off. Do you think businesses that start during a recession are more likely to last than those that start during the boom that they might get a bit carried away with themselves? Yeah, I think you could, you know, you, your success might in some circumstances be artificial. Um, and it is a big, it was a big um, knock for all of us to realize, like, to realize that um, 
a lot of our success was based on this bubble. We, we all thought it was based on our own fabulousness or reality or whatever, but it wasn't. Um, you know, I was running, a, um, I used to work in the nightclub business and I was running some club nights at the time and that used to be to do quite well for me. And next minute, whoom, the carpet was pulled out, it was gone. And that was a big shock because I thought I was great. I thought I could, <laughs> you know, I was so fabulous. What could possibly go wrong? But it wasn't me at all. It was just that people had lots of disposable income and they were all out all the time. Um, and I was benefiting from it, you know. Um, so, yeah, that, that was an eye opener. You, you're a product of your circumstances and where you are at any particular time. Um, we're, we're lucky to be in this part of the world and to be you know all doing reasonably well compared to some to compared to how difficult it can be in other countries in terms of the future then what are your plans for development and growth and are you going to add more products to the current product portfolio yes i do have some things on my little sticky note list that i'm trying to develop um Going slowly and surely, I think, again, as we were talking about, vegan products are important. Um, I'd like to maybe do some baked products as well. I don't know. It's it, I, We'll see what comes out. I, I, But yeah, there will be more. There will be new things. Um, do you do all of this yourself or do you have a team of people that can, can help you whenever it comes to being creative? Well... I work with kind of different manufacturers, so I go to them with ideas and see what they come back with. And I have a few ideas out there at the moment trying to develop different things. Sometimes things just don't work. You know, we were trying to do beautiful glittery lollipops this Christmas and they were going to be fabulous. And um, they they look so bad. Really? Yeah, they just didn't happen. They sound like a great idea. I can visualize them myself. They're fabulous. But, you know, some things don't work. So you have to kind of keep doing, you know, one out of every five thing will suddenly turn out to be what you'd imagined it and hoped it to be. So, yeah. Well, I'm sure you'll you you will manage to get those glittery lollipops at some stage. (laughs) Something will happen and it will work out. And I look forward to seeing them because I do think they would be a huge hit. Thanks so much for having me today and continued success with your wonderful company. Fantastic products. Well done. Thank you. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. And that brings us to the end of tonight's second helping show with Ron Forrestal and Nicole Dumphy. Thanks for tuning in. Next week we'll be hitting the kingdom to get the lowdown on the 23rd Listole Food Fair, which takes place from Thursday the 9th until Sunday the 12th of November. Visit listolefoodfair.ie for full programme details. So until then, happy Halloween. And bon appétit. Thanks for listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. To get in touch with The Best Possible Taste, email Sharon at SharonNoonan.com or tweet Sharon at Queen of Org. As in, Queen of Organisation. Bon appétit.